Hello everyone, welcome to the Beedle Radio. It's a podcast about crypto and cryptocurrency. My name is Andrei Sobel and I give the floor to my colleague, my co-host Polina. Polina. Hi everyone, nice to see you here again. So today we're talking with David and I would ask David to introduce yourself and tell us what you're, what you're an expert in and what things we should ask you. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for, for having me. Yeah. Um, my name is David Myhall. Um, I am, I guess I'm a, I'm a developer, so I'm an expert in uh, Ethereum Solidity, kind of the whole um, Ethereum development ecosystem. I've been developing applications and stuff on Ethereum for about the last four or five-ish years. Um, and yeah, also just kind of you know, an expert in the, the wider crypto ecosystem, a lot of like kind of the, the DeFi space and things like that. Right. And what would be the thing that you're not expert in and we should never ask you about that? <laughs> I think I'm not an expert in, you know, it's interesting because crypto is getting to be a very large space. There's a lot of different um, uh, expertise and, and different types of things in the space. Uh, one is, you know, I'm not that bad at math. Uh, I did fine at math in school, but there's some people in crypto who like really understand. Yeah, some of these applications have like really high level math and high level cryptography in them. So I'm definitely not an expert at the the really advanced math that's needed for lots of crypto things. Uh, and kind of on the other direction, lots of things in crypto try to solve, you know, really like uh, human coordination problems, things like you know, DAOs and, and organizations, things like that. Uh, so I, I'm not like a, an expert in, yeah, I think like the human side, that's something that's uh, really tricky, kind of building these organizations. And I'd say that's not even something that's specific to crypto. Like people have been struggling trying to, to figure out how to best organize and coordinate people for all of history. Um, but that's uh, definitely not my strong area. Gotcha. Governance always has been probably the hardest question in everywhere, I guess. <laughs> All right. So I know that you've built one of the later, like, latest of your projects is CryptoStats.Community. And yeah, it's kind of uh, warms my heart because there is so little products related to actually product management, statistics uh, in blockchain. Like, how did you get to this idea? Why did you decide to build this? And what is the biggest insight you got when you finished it sure yeah i'll give the full the full uh, background of that project so the the whole project started with a site that some of your listeners might know about called cryptofees.info uh this is a for anyone who doesn't know it it's like a really simple website that just shows crypto protocols by their fee revenue um and it's all sorts of crypto protocols so it's got layer ones like ethereum and bitcoin it's got you know, layer twos like Arbitrum and Optimism. It has uh, decentralized exchanges like Uniswap. It has lending protocols like Aave. It's got kind of any type of crypto protocol that's that's decentralized and it has users paying some type of fee to the, the protocol. And I first made that site back in uh, DeFi summer, back in the, the, the fun times of 2020. Uh, and I made it just because I was curious about this metric. I think I saw... Uh, some people like talking about this metric on Twitter and I wanted to uh, there to be a place where I could track that metric. So yeah, I, I made the, this really simple website in a couple hours and 
you know, actually it was a few weeks after I built the site, I like just shared it on Twitter and it surprised me that the site got a really big, you know, a lot of traction and not just when I shared it, kind of people kept coming back to it. So I kept improving the site for a bit. I was, you know, people were reaching out, like lots of teams wanted their protocol to be added to the site. So they would reach out with that. Uh, and I started making kind of other sites that had other metrics and yeah, the project was going, growing from there. Um, again, this was still just a, a side project, but I started to understand some of the, the, the problems in the like data metrics space. Uh, so one of them was that when you have sites like this that need bits of adapters to gather information, um, you know, first of all, every, uh, you know, all the major protocols want to be listed on the site. So I have every DeFi project like messaging me saying, yeah, how do we get on the site? trying to kind of put together code so they can get included. And on the other side, there were a lot of uh, projects and companies coming to me saying, hey, we want this data. You know, you have some really good data here and we want to use it for our website, for our, you know, newsletter, for whatever. Uh, is there an API? How can we get access to this? And so I kind of start to realize this is a bit of like, a, in some sense, like a marketplace problem. You have some people providing uh, a service, like providing data, and others that want to consume the data. Um, and, but it's also like a, a public good, you know, the data we provide, and, and I believe all data should be like this, that data is free and should be free, especially when this data is coming from a blockchain. Like blockchain data is by definition open and transparent. And I think that the, the data metrics that are derived from blockchain data should also be open, free, transparent, like available to anybody. Doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense to me to take data that's already open and free, you know, kind of do a little bit of processing and then charge money for it. So from there, um, kind of came up with the idea of building CryptoStats. And CryptoStats is a platform, a, a decentralized platform for, you know, again, kind of ingesting this data from various data sources, uh, kind of transforming it, uh, normalizing it, and giving like a kind of a package data set to anyone that wants to consume it which includes our websites. Again, we still run uh, these websites like crypto fees and L2 fees, and, and we've got some other new ones in the pipeline. But we also give data to a bunch of other projects, um, sites like The Block, which is like a prominent crypto news website. Uh, there's Bloomberg, which I think most people will be familiar with Bloomberg, um, and a bunch of smaller projects as well, uh, some, some interesting data projects in the crypto space. So yeah, our goal is to make this data open, free, uh, and available to, to everybody. Uh, and at the same time, again, we're still also trying to build these nice front ends, which help people understand like the fundamentals of data metrics. Um, we want our sites to be like accessible to everybody, not, not just like data experts. So that's kind of the overview of the project and, and how we've gotten to where we are. All right. Well, thank you for such a nice intro. I saw that uh, on the crypto fees website, uh, I think like Nier scored very low. There's actually so many blockchains that score really low on how much fees you pay in there, like compared to Ethereum at least. Like I'm, the question I had, like, are you sure you're measuring those right? <laughs> I don't know. Or how do you do it for <laughs> Because all the blockchains are so different, right? Yeah, so this is the the big challenge. And, uh, you know, when you look at something like crypto fees, it looks like such a simple site. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of work to, you know, basically every everything on that list needs separate codes, separate indexers. You know, we use the graph protocol a lot. 
lots of tooling to just to aggregate that one little number. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, uh, there are mistakes on the site sometimes, but I have a pretty strong confidence that the numbers on there are accurate. Um, as you mentioned, like a lot of these layer ones are quite low. Mm-hmm. Um, on some hand, that makes sense because a lot of these blockchains, they advertise low fees. That's kind of their, their value prop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most, but, but lots of layer ones will say, ah. Oh, yeah, it, it's like, I guess, Ethereum has about 4 million today. I just saw it and it's still like near... Uh, what else is there at the bottom? Actually, there are so many of them. They they do like about ten times less, about thousand times less. It's like the it's the margin is huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a really like uh, order of magnitude difference between well, first of all, between Ethereum and and everything else. You know, I think yeah, Binance Smart Chain is maybe the second one down. You've got kind of Binance Smart Chain and, and a few of those, uh, and then yeah, like down the list, there's things like Near uh, and other things there. I'll say that the near one actually comes directly from an index that run by the the near foundation team behind near so um, yeah well again you know anybody can can make mistakes uh but you know I think you can think of people people will ask they'll say oh why is why is fee revenue a good metric for understanding blockchains when you know again you have things like near and uh, you know binance smart chain or Solana that have low fees low down the list and, and people will say well that's a good thing. Like low fees are a good thing. I say, like, why, you know, why, sh- why is it a good thing that Ethereum has really high fees? Um, you know, from, I think you can definitely look at it under the framing of, yes, the fees are quite high on Ethereum, but it's fees generally come from supply and demand. And even though the fees are high, people are willing to, to pay those fees, uh, which is quite impressive. On the other hand, uh, the way I like to think of fee revenue is that it's kind of the floor price for the value of a network because when someone pays a fee like you know when someone sends a transaction on the layer one or someone makes a trade on a a decentralized exchange they're the amount of value they're getting out of that that action is at least what the fee is right if i if i'm sending a a transaction on ethereum and and i think this transaction is worth a dollar to me, that's how much value I'm getting out. But the fee is two dollars. I'm probably not going to send that transaction. Uh, so people will pay up to what they perceive the value of the transaction to be. So that's why you can say with with Ethereum, with any protocol that has high fees, the the margin between the value of the transaction and the actual transaction fee might be a bit smaller. Uh, but with say a chain like Solana, you know, where someone's paying a fraction of a of a cent to send a transaction, they're probably willing to spend. Uh, you know, quite a bit more than that actual fee. You know, if the fee went 10x and it was still a fraction of a cent, but, you know, at 10x more, they might think nothing about it. So I think that's a, the framing that makes sense to me is this is like the, the lower bound of the value of a, of an application or a protocol, but not necessarily the, the upper bound. You mentioned fee as a metric, but what other metrics is important? When you see this, some new protocols, what I should do if I see the new protocols, what I should check, what's the metric I should check before I try to do some business with this protocol? It's a great question. Um, so for me, certainly fees, fee revenue is the metric that I'm the biggest fan of and I think is the, the closest to uh, strong fundamentals for a project. But, um, you know, the other big metric that people look at a lot is total value locked. I think that's definitely a good metric it's not a perfect metric um but you know you can get a sense of 
how much value are people putting into the applications on this protocol. Um, you'll see some chains that, you know, the, the chain itself is like a, maybe has a, the, the native asset has a large market cap, but there's not much total value locked. So that might indicate people aren't actually using DeFi on that chain. Um, now, of course, the problem with this is, first of all, there's many ways you can manipulate total value locked. You know, if I, if I make a token, I release a small amount of that token into the markets. So then the token has like a, a market cap and I put, you know, 90% of this token in some contract where it's just locked. I've now on paper created a really high total value locked, but I haven't actually created any value. And the, the amount of value locked is not actually like it's a small fraction or the amount locked compared to the amount that's liquid is so small that it's not the actual value locked. You can also, um, compose like you can have uh, you put an asset into one protocol and then take the derivative and put it into another protocol you can kind of like loop value through i know we saw um, some teams doing that on solana to try to like boost their value a lot so there's a few uh, issues with that the other issue is that uh, value locked in a protocol is not necessarily like a good thing i guess one example is if we look at uniswap v3 uh, i'm a big fan of uniswap v3 i think it's a really cool model and Uniswap V3 was really capital efficient. You you only needed a little bit of value to get really good trading. So with something like Uniswap V3, it actually works just as well with less value locked. So those are some of the problems, I think, with total value locked. But that aside, it is still, there's a reason it is one of the most popular metrics. Um, people will talk about total transactions on, you know, a chain or on an exchange or something like that, which again is like, a metric that is not a bad metric, but it does have a number of issues. Uh, my biggest issue is that a transaction is not equal. You know, one transaction on one chain is not necessarily equal to a transaction on another chain um, or even on the same chain. Like if you're comparing a chain that people are just making token transfers against a chain where uh, people are maybe doing some complex flash loan that has borrowing and lending and trading in one transaction, uh, you know, those are not equivalent. And I think as chains become more expensive, uh, people will try to find techniques to combine multiple uh, actions into a single transaction. So one example would be, uh, if people are familiar with CowSwap, CowSwap is a, a cool decentralized exchange that like will bundle a bunch of uh, users' trades together and, you know, a relayer will execute it against uh, various liquidity sources. And with CowSwap, you have like one transaction that might have, it might have one trade in it, or it might have 20 trades inside this single transaction. So that's an example of, you know, if you have this transaction that executes 20 trades, that's only one transaction, but there's 20 different like user actions in a single transaction. So one thing I would like to see, and, and maybe this is a metric that we might try to, to build as part of CryptoStats is breaking down not by just transactions, but by user actions. So like how many uh, trades on on ex uh, decentralized exchanges, how many token transfers, things like that. Uh, so I think that would be a, a good metric. The last metric I'll mention would be just looking at things like value transferred. Um, if you look at, this was one of the, I think the, the second site that we built after crypto fees was called Money Movers. And Money Movers looks at the total volume of assets moved on, you know, it showed Bitcoin versus Ethereum and maybe a few other chains. So you can look at those two and you can say, like, 
which chains are people using to move large amounts of value. So maybe maybe there's not so many transactions happening, but you know, if people are moving like millions and millions of dollars on one chain, that's an interesting signal of uh, which chains like the, the whales are using. Uh, so I think that was really interesting. You know, we created that site back in 2020, and that was around when Ethereum first flipped Bitcoin uh, as the chain that moves the most value. And for the most part, Ethereum has stayed the the chain that moves more value than Bitcoin since then. With other, with a few uh, a few periods of time, Bitcoin has overtaken it. But for the most part, Ethereum is like the chain that uh, is used for settling large amounts of value. Whereas uh, I think Bitcoin maybe tends to be a chain that people just want to hold their value on. And uh, if exec- if you exclude the stable coins from this amount of transferring, is still Ethereum have more scores? In, in this case, if you if you will that's, exclude, yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I would have to check. I'm not sure the current state of it. Um, yeah, the way we showed on the site, we tried to only show assets that were kind of uh, like money type assets, which were you know store of values like ETH and Bitcoin, as well as stable coins. So we don't show like governance tokens or or things like that. I know at least a while ago, I think Bitcoin was still higher than Ethereum when you uh, remove stable coins. But yeah, again, I don't know the current state of, of that. Um, one other thing you have to pay attention to is we show uh, Ether and wrapped Ether separately. So, you know, you can probably kind of think of those as, as one asset because wrapped Ether is, is essentially just a very simple smart contract on, uh, on top of Ether. So if you, I'm not sure if you combine wrapped Ether and Ether together, if it's higher or lower than Bitcoin, but I think they're close. I think they're both kind of uh, pretty competitive uh, in terms of which chain is or which asset is being uh, moved more. Okay, coming back to the uh, list of the important metrics, uh, you mentioned the fee, total value locked, and uh, uh, amount of money that's transferred. Do we have correlation between uh, these three metrics? If if we have and if we have correlation, what's the cause and what's the effect in this case? So this was a correlation between which metrics? Uh, fee and total. Let's start from fee and total value locked. That's a good question. Uh, so I haven't like crunched these numbers myself. My my intuition is that there's probably some correlation between those two. Um, I know you know Ethereum is is probably the chain that has the highest. Uh, it's definitely the chain that has the highest fees, and I believe it's probably the chain that has the to- highest total value locked by far. You would assume these are both metrics that are somewhat representative of usage. And so they should be correlated. Um, my guess is maybe on some of the smaller chains might be where we see some divergence. There might be some chains that have really high value locked, but maybe not so much fees, not so many people actually using it, or vice versa. There might be some chains that have, um, you know, maybe a chain that's mostly used for payments. There might be people transferring a lot, but uh, there's not much total value locked because that's, you know, you, you can have, you can look at a chain like Bitcoin where. There's essentially no applications on Bitcoin, so all it has are fees. The total value locked is, is basically zero, um, or maybe the, the, the small amount of Bitcoin that's in Lightning Network. Yeah, so you also have a website talking about Layer 2 fees. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on Layer 2? Maybe tell what kind of Layer 2s exist and how to pick the best Layer 2, uh, why the fees are still higher than Solana and things like that. Sure. So, um, yeah, so this site that you mentioned is called l2fees.info. And uh, what I want to show on the site was, um, you know, obviously, like, 
all these projects, uh, both layer ones and layer twos, are competing to try to like lower fees. You know, users often can't afford the the really high fees on Ethereum, so everyone wants to make it easier for for users to access those. The problem with comparing fees is um, layer ones often lower their fees by basically trading off decentralization. You know, there are some blockchains that they basically they haven't really solved any. Uh, technical problems, like any real technical scalability problems, they've kind of just said like, well, you need to run like a really powerful server to to run a node of this network. So to me, that's not actually scalability. That's just kind of making a trade off. Like you can, you can go to um, Google Sheets or you can go to a like Postgres database. It'll have really high scalability, but it'll be just one computer. You've, you've now completely gotten rid of decentralization and you only have like quote unquote scalability. The cool thing with layer twos is, uh, in theory, they can maintain the great, the nice properties of blockchains of being uh, decentralized and secure uh, without, but also having like the low fees that uh, that users want. So for l2fees.info, we show these different layer twos and what the fees are on those layer twos, so that users can kind of see like. If I move to these layer twos, what is the, how much does it cost for me to do basic actions? Like how much does it cost for me to send somebody ETH? How much does it cost for um, me to make like a token swap on, you know, Uniswap or whatever the exchange is on that chain? Um, and I think this also gives like a nice like breakdown of not only like comparing layer twos against each other, but also understanding like the state of layer twos. Um, how far have we gone to achieving our goals and making Ethereum like affordable enough to use. Um, a lot of people might remember there was a, a quote from Vitalik back from many years ago, where he was like, "The internet of blockchain shouldn't cost five cents to send a transaction. It's kind of absurd." And this is a quote that many people will bring up when they're complaining about Ethereum. They're going, "Oh, Ethereum is so expensive." And Vitalik used to make fun of other chains. He used to make fun of Bitcoin for costing five cents. That that was too expensive. And now Ethereum costs like you know. So, at the at the peak, it was costing I don't know twenty dollars to do like simple transactions. Um, so I think this site's like a nice example. Whenever I see the fees are getting below five cents, it's like okay, we're doing it. We're kind of meeting the Vitalik level for a, a low fee. Oh yeah, okay. So do you think that's ever a place that rollup will not fit into Ethereum as the result? Because yeah, layer twos are mostly rollups, and rollups need to put their proofs into the public network, which is Ethereum, because they're scaling Ethereum. And I don't know, like how many projects right now in layer twos? Maybe a dozen or so. Do you think that Ethereum will run out of space and only run on rollups eventually? <laughs> I mean, I think the you know. The end state of Ethereum is for, you know, the layer one, the, the Ethereum everybody's used to mm -hmm. using will be like, it won't be a place for users to, to use because, you know, it'll be the, the block space is not really going to increase on Ethereum. So we can assume the layer one is just going to get more and more expensive. Uh, and that the primary use of this really expensive sp block space will be for settlement of things like rollups. Um, you know, maybe it will be some very high value you know, market makers doing some settlement between rollups and things on layer one. But, you know, most users will probably never, ever touch uh, layer one eventually. But the interesting thing is, I think we're, as this technology is maturing, you know, in the past, we just had like blockchains, you know, there was just many different layer ones, essentially. 
And then we got this idea of, okay, there's layer ones and layer twos. But I think the, um, the narrative is shifting more towards this idea of modular blockchains that they're not necessarily just layer ones and layer twos, but there's different, uh, different entities that serve different purposes. So some people will say there are, uh, settlement layers, execution layers, and data availability layers. So in the past, uh, you know, most blockchains did all three of those at the same time. They would, they would have the data availability, the execution, the settlement. Um, with rollups, we're kind of, uh, taking execution and putting execution in this one entity, the rollup, and Ethereum is providing both data availability and settlement. Uh, but it's possible to break that up even further. You've got um, some projects like ZK Sync, they're um, providing kind of a an off-chain data availability layer. They call it uh, ZK Porter and ZK Sync. Uh, but I know another, uh, some other projects have very similar type things. And then you even have projects like Celestia, where Celestia is a blockchain that's just a data availability layer. It's like a, it's like the simplest blockchain because it doesn't really do anything other than just let you post data. So, you know, the idea is you could have, um, a, you know, what we now refer to as a rollup, you know, an execution layer like, um, Optimism or Arbitrum or ZK Sync that's, uh, settling on Ethereum. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, the token balances are ultimately like ending up on Ethereum. You kind of bridge to and from Ethereum, but the data uh, ends up on something like Celestia. Um, and then, you know, that's like a simple, like modular blockchain stack. But then of course you could have many different execution layers, settlement layers, uh, data layers, all kind of interacting. You can have execution layers running on top of other execution layers, which is what uh, projects are referring to as like layer threes right now. So, um, I think we're going to see this kind of like explosion of different different ways of like structuring blockchains, um, and it's kind of like a computer. When you think of like in the past, computers used to be just be like computers, and then you got to the point where you had okay, no, there's like a graphics card that does one thing, and a hard drive does one thing. You've got these different components, and you can choose if you want like a really good graphics card, a really good CPU, a uh, really fast memory, uh, things like that. That's that's kind of what blockchains are going to end up looking like. Andre is smiling because he works in ZK Sync. <laughs> yeah, and I work in ZK Sync, but not only in ZK Sync. I'm the guy who does these things, which you call the ZK Porter. <laughs> okay. I'm glad I picked the. I think I picked the right example for that uh, <laughs> that question. Then. Yeah, oh, but coming back to the uh, layer two fees and. Uh, we have two different types of layer two or three layer twos for now. It's like optimistic rollups and uh, ZK rollups. And uh, one of this technology based on the fraud proofs, another one based on the uh, validity proof. In this case, when you try to do some transaction in the rollup, you always pay full price of the transaction because your transaction will be committed to layer one and it cannot be reverted in the simple way. So, but in the case of the optimistic rollup, you always have this potential potential amount of transaction fee, uh, which you need to pay if something went wrong in the optimistic rollup, is the block producer on the optimistic rollup just push invalid state. So you need to prove invalidity of the state. Uh, how you can, how do, first of all, 
can we calculate the amount of money that we need to spend in the case of malicious validator in the in, in the optimistic rollup and uh, do we have this metric now? So the metric being like what is the amount, like what's the maximum value that yes. can be secured by this? No, yeah, no, no, um, no, no, the, the amount of fees that you need to pay in the in the pessimistic case because what us understands that your side showing to us like uh, the, the amount of fees that you need to pay in an optimistic case if the block producer uh, do not try to cheat. So, so you're talking about fees paid by users or fees paid by like the challenger uh, of a optimistic proof? But like uh, the challenger have some incentives to pay this fee, of course, and he gets the money. But like in the end, you can have scenario where there is no real incentives. The uh, the treasury which will pay this money will be empty. So the user, if they want to withdraw money or do something, they need to pay transaction fee for execution of uh, fraud proof. So that's mean. That means that you spend more money if you try to secure your uh, your money in the pessimistic case. More money than you can see in the uh, optimistic metrics, let's call it. Kind of what you're asking is, you know, how what are the incentives for someone to like post a fraud proof in the you know the case that there's fraud or something? But the the main incentive that the prover gets for like disputing an invalid uh, an invalid block from a, an optimistic rollup. It's the like the bond that the sequencer posts. So it's not, I think, connected to the fees that the user is paying so much. It's um, you know just this like uh, you know if you want to become a, a sequencer on like Optimism or Arbitrum, I believe you have to post a, a bunch of ETH. I, I don't know how much ETH it is, but it's obviously proportional to how much the chain can secure. So if it's ten ETH uh, there to be secured, then anybody who sees fraud, you know. They're incentivized to post it because they can earn that, like they can slash the sequencer and get that 10 ETH. So I don't think the the amount that the user pays in fees is like affected by that so much. Um, you know, I guess the the sequencer does want to make sure because the sequencer is earning some of the fees that the users are paying. So they probably want to make sure if, if they have to post 10 ETH or 100 ETH or whatever as like collateral that they're going to earn that back from the fees that the users are paying. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure the exact like state and, and economics of um, of what being a sequencer and how much they have to post and things like that. But what what I can hear right now is that you need to uh, collateralize 100% of the money as it was transferred in exactly in some block in the optimistic rollup. But is it possible, for example, if you try to use like flash loans? On the optimistic roll-up side, where you loan like million millions of dollars, so you need to secure your roll-ups like in the same amount of money. Yeah, again, I'm not sure the exact economics of. Um, I don't think you need to collateralize all the value that exists in the layer two with with that bond because obviously that. Uh, I mean, that wouldn't scale very well, right? Like you can't yeah. have one sequencer yeah. that has to post. You know, I, I think we all hope that these things will eventually have like billions of dollars in value and you can't expect one entity to, to put up that much collateral. Um, so I don't know, um, again, the, the game theory of how much value needs to be posted as collateral compared to how much value is, is in the chain, but I, I'm sure there is some relationship there. And that's probably something that uh, like people need to be aware of uh, in terms of like how secure 
their value is in these optimistic rollups. Um, there's a great, you know, we've, we've spoken about a bunch of uh, metric info sites. Um, lots of people might be aware of the site called L2Beat, which is a really amazing site uh, that ranks all these, you know, it shows the total value locked in these layer twos. And it, it also shows a lots of the security properties of these layer twos, kind of like what are the, um, you know, right now a lot of it is like what kind of admin controls exist in the system, but it's also like what are the, what are the edge cases? What are the cases where your money could be frozen or stolen? Things like that. Um, I don't know if they show anything around this like game theor- game theoretical level of um, with optimistic rollups, but if not, like I think that would be a great uh, metric for them to show, and I think you know their team would be really good at, at figuring that out because it's a really smart people behind that site. You mentioned the security level of different layer tools, but maybe we can talk a little bit about the security levels of the layer ones. Can we have like one generalized security index for all existing blockchains, which are proof of work chains, proof of stake chains? Because we know that like the proof of work and proof of stake, the security model is totally different. Because like if if proof of stake is broken, it's broken forever. But if proof of work broken, it's broken for like sometimes for for sometimes uh, where the attacker try to put more hash power to the to the protocol and try to reward some part of the protocol. What about security index of layer one? Yeah, so you know to to try to quantify security, uh, I think you would look at like what is the the dollar amount needed to attack. Again, this gets a, a little bit fuzzy when it comes to uh, the proof of work side. If, if we look at proof of stake, you know, the amount needed to attack would be roughly based on, you know, how much stake do you need to have a, like, attacking level of value. Uh, of course, this is different for different proof of stake implementations. Like Ethereum's proof of stake implementation is obviously different than something like Tendermint or Avalanche or Solana's proof of stake implementation. But there's, there's some level of stake that allows you to, um, have some attack surface over the network. So you'd say, how much stake do you need to do that? And, you know, what is the dollar cost of that asset needed for that? For, for proof of work, of course, it's um, based on like how much hash power do you have? You have a controlling amount of hash power in the network. And to turn hash power into like a dollar amount, you need to look at like, you know, essentially like what is the, um, how much yeah, you know, the the financial asset that ultimately secures proof of work is electricity, and so it's like how much, uh, what is the cost of electricity, which is of course different in different parts of the world, and how many hashes per amount of electricity can you get, which depends on the hardware you're using to mine. Um, so it would be really cool. I would, again would love to see a metric like this. Maybe this is something that that we can put together um, to look at, like you know, on an average case if we look at like the the most common uh proof of work mining equipment and maybe like an average uh, electricity cost in a place that mining is common we can maybe get like a dollar value for what is the dollar cost needed to attack a network and compare that to the dollar cost needed to attack a proof of stake network um so i think that would be probably the best metric we could could come up with in terms of the you know security of a network one thing i'll push back against is you were saying that um, you know, if, if there's an attack on proof of stake, it's like broken forever and proof of work can recover. Um, there is kind of a, like the other, I, I don't know if I agree with that take because, you know, with proof of work, you can essentially, an attacker can keep attacking, right? Like 
the system is somewhat anti-fragile because anybody can mine. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of like an external system. But, you know, once you have, if you have electricity and mining hardware, you can just keep attacking the network over and over. Whereas on a proof of stake system, you know, first of all, when you uh, attack, say you double sign uh, on Ethereum, you try to do like a, a, a double spend attack. As soon as the network realizes that, it's going to slash you, which is kind of like, you know, the equivalent on proof of stake would be like if you try to double sign your your mining hardware just kind of explodes. You you can't, you know, reuse that hardware to attack again. And if there's like a, another form of attack um, where, you know, uh, some, some validator has a, a really large amount of stake and they're attacking, you can always have some kind of uh, like user activated soft fork to essentially like freeze or remove an actor from the network, which again, you can't do on proof of stake, or sorry, you can't do on proof of work because, uh, you don't know, you know, the, the asset is a physical asset. It's like electricity and hardware. Uh, it's not a, a digital asset that can be like deleted from the blockchain. But argument from the proof of work fan will be that we can have the same user activated soft fork and change the, uh, algorithm of hashing. That means that, uh, you need to build your ASICs from scratch in this case. So you will like have some time where the protocol can be more or less secure. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's the, that's kind of, I think like the nuclear option is you change the hashing algorithm. Uh, but what you're doing is you're not, uh, you're not just destroying like the ability for the attacker to attack. You're destroying the ability for anybody to keep mining. So you can imagine if Bitcoin changed their proof of work algorithm, um, you know, it would remove like a potential uh, attacker on proof of work, but you've also now, uh, like any mining operation, you've now destroyed all their mining equipment. They're, they're, you haven't actually destroyed it, but it can't mine Bitcoin anymore. So all these warehouses full of, of, you know, honest Bitcoin miners are now like they've been kind of kicked off the network. And you could imagine like, you know, again, these are all very like theoretical cases, but if this was like a state level actor, say this was like a, the U.S. government or some government that had a lot of resources that was trying to attack Bitcoin, you could imagine that they also might have the resources to mine on, you know, like once you've changed the algorithm, you've kind of reset the to zero that there's no one that has built up this mining equipment that maybe the U.S. government also has lots of generalized uh, computing hardware and they could kind of almost be, uh, it'd be easier for them to attack the new mining algorithm, whereas all the honest miners, they they don't have any hardware anymore. So they've been kind of set to zero. So um, yeah, I think this is kind of like a, a debate that will always go on between like the proof of work and proof of stake sides about which one is more like vulnerable to attack. There's certainly both adva advantages and disadvantages of, of both of them. Um, but I, I think, you know, so far we've seen like uh, proof of stake's been worked well on, on a number of these chains. And I think, uh, other than Bitcoin, we'll probably see, like, we'll continue to see proof of stake just being the dominant consensus, uh, protocol. Oh yeah. There is another debate with proof of work versus, uh, proof of stake is, uh, censorship resistance, actually. 
So with proof of stake, like with Ethereum right now, there is uh, like companies who actually own a big, huge pieces of stake. So there is a question getting raised because it's it's not like all this a bunch of miners all over the world. Now it's like corporations or huge companies. Is it still so censorship resistant? So I know also maybe you can tell a little bit more about MEV and why it is good or bad. And yeah, general comment. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is good. I think there has been a bit of like misconceptions around the whole um, censorship issue on Ethereum. First, I'll say that like I think the censorship is obviously uh, a big problem on Ethereum, and it's like something the community needs to be taking seriously. And it's something that like we need to think about like the values of the network, our, our values as a community. Like, do we value censorship resistance? Is it something we're willing to like fight over? Is it something we're willing to like make? tough decisions over um and for me personally like i think it it strongly is we need to like ensure that censorship resistance is it, this is one of the main value propositions of blockchains in general and um you know we need to i i want ethereum to be a, a chain that's censorship resistant and uh, i think we should all be working to to make that a reality and i'm confident that uh that the community is working towards solutions that we will find ways around it but some of the misconceptions I've seen is that um, you know, I don't think this is something specific to proof of stake. Um, there's a bit of like poor timing. Um, the, the censorship in question came about from uh, the Tornado Cash sanctions. Uh, and those sanctions were put in place around a month before Ethereum moved to proof of stake. And of course, it took a bit of time for like entities to start actually like censoring and adopting these these practices. So I think a lot of people think censorship started when proof of stake started, but actually um, one of the largest mining pools, I think it was Ethermine, I'm not exactly sure, one of the largest Ethereum proof of work pools was also censoring um, Tornado Cash transactions back when Ethereum was on proof of work. So this is certainly not something specific to proof of work or proof of stake. And uh, I'd say it's also not that it's a... Um, the main issue is not like that there's one entity that has stake that's trying to censor. It's that um, the the largest stakers are using these um, protocols to earn additional revenue from from MEV from like minor extractable value, and the main relayer that provides uh, these like block building uh, MEV services is Flashbots, which is a you know U.S. company that is you know still not very decentralized and so flashbots has decided that they want to be uh compliant and so the problem is uh flashbots is still like probably building the most profitable block blocks so lots of validators are probably not even it's not even an ideological or a legal decision saying we want to censor or we don't want to censor they're just saying we can make the most money if we run um you know, MEV boost and we build blocks or we, we validate blocks built by flashbots. And, you know, so they're just maximizing their profit, but that is leading to some censorship. And of course, um, blockchains are kind of built around the idea that everyone will be greedy. Uh, this is how mining works, as you say. Well, uh, you can you can mine and you can at attack the network and try to get 51% of, um, of the mining power. But if you play by the rules, then you'll you know, you'll earn rewards. You, it, it'll be in your economic interest to kind of act in the best interest of the, the community. And 
this issue of MEV is kind of challenging those notions, uh, at least when it comes to censorship resistance. It's not the the networks are still secure, but they're not as censorship resistant because the the entity that is providing the um, most economic opportunity is also one that is uh, doing a bit of censorship. So I guess the other misconception is that like uh, this is something specific to Ethereum because of course this is something that can happen on any blockchain as long as like the transactions are public. Um, if there was you know an ad if there was a Bitcoin address that was sanctioned by OFAC, then you, we might see censorship on Bitcoin around that. If there was a um, you know on on Solana or you know a or Avalanche or some other chain, if there was some public contract that was sanctioned, we would probably see some censorship in those ecosystems as well. The only real way uh, around that is to have I think some level of privacy so that the the companies that are like building and responsible for the censorship uh, don't even know like what actions are in the blocks that they're building. So this could be something on a, a chain like Zcash where you just have, uh, or, or a layer two like Aztec potentially, where you just have some, some zero knowledge proofs and the, the validators or sequencers or whatever, like they can't censor because they, they don't know what they would need to, to censor. So, you know, that's obviously one, nice solution but um you know the privacy has a lot of overhead i don't think we'll ever get to a point where like everything is private uh, of course there's a lot of protocols that might not even work when they're private like it's it's difficult if not impossible to have an automated market maker that's completely private you, you need to at least show like what are the reserves in the pool so there's going to be a, i think a bit of like a some some balance some challenge between People building protocols that are more private, which will in turn make them more censorship resistant um, against protocols that are trying to be fast and efficient, uh, and those might run into issues of, of censorship. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big unsolved problem. Um, but yeah, I think it's as I said in the beginning, it's important that we talk about it, that we address how much of an issue this is, and kind of stick to our values and don't allow um, protocols that are not as censorship resistant to to become normalized uh, because that's i think against what the values that have gotten a lot of us into this ecosystem you have said ethbernet.info and you have said moneyprinter.info in the first side you show how ethereum burn ethereum <laughs> ethereum protocol burn others and in the second side you cannot find uh, any mention about Ethereum, that means that the the amount of Ethereum that right now printed, it's not so simply calculated. So my question is, uh, how it work? Why uh, the, uh, the uh, inflation, deflation politics in Ethereum so complex? What is heap 1558? Why 1559? And uh, how it works? Yeah, so... Um... It's a great question. I, the the burn and issuance of Ethereum is probably one of the most like interesting parts of Ethereum's kind of monetary policy right now. Um, you mentioned those sites, Money Printer and ETH Burned. Um, I think yeah, we might not show Ethereum on Money Printer because so eventually as well is to show absolute issuance and net issuance. So Ethereum is still issuing new ETH, and the plan is that Ethereum will always print new ETH but that ETH is offset by the amount of ETH that is burned. So the amount issued is constant, um, or it's, a, it's 
based on the amount of validators, and it's, it's somewhat constant. But the amount that's burned is based on just how much are users using the network, uh, how many, how much demand is it for Ethereum block space. So that means when, when there's a lot of demand, when a lot of people are trying to send transactions, the fees go up, which means the burn goes up, um, which means typically now the amount of ETH that exists starts decreasing, it goes negative. And when the network is not being used as much, the burn is low and the amount of ETH is increasing. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting mechanism. You can contrast that against something like Bitcoin, where Bitcoin, there's no burn. Bitcoin has inflation, but the, the idea is that the inflation will kind of uh, decay until it reaches zero issuance. Uh, but that's, of course, in, a, in around 100 years. So for the next 100 plus years, Bitcoin will be the amount of uh, supply, circulating supply of Bitcoin will keep increasing. And it's, you know, this, this number, again, seems to change day to day, but that will probably settle on some equilibrium where the amount of ETH uh, in existence is slightly decreasing over time. Uh, and again, that's based on two components. EIP-1559 is the change that introduced the this fee burn. Uh, prior to that, fees would just go to miners, but now the majority of fees are burned, uh, kind of taken out of existence. And then the other change was the merge, which just happened, uh, you know, a month or two ago. And the merge just decreased the amounts of issuance, that uh, the amount of issuance needed to secure a proof-of-stake network is much lower than the amount needed for a proof-of-work network. So it reduced the amount of issuance to a level that was um, that is often lower than the amount that's being burned. So that's where we get this kind of uh, uh, equilibrium between those two values. And of course, the best place to, to track that is uh, another really amazing info site called watchtheburn.info. Uh, sorry, uh, watchtheburn.com is, is another great site, but the, the really, I think, most popular one is called ultrasoundmoney.com, I think. And that shows a lot of really interesting metrics around uh, how much is being burned, issued, and you can see a, a chart of the Ether supply over time, which, uh, you know, looks like it's getting close to going below the supply at the time of the merge. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of goes up and down day to day. So I'm checking that. That a lot. Do you have intuition about the, when we will have this equilibrium? How many Ethereum you need, we need to print? Maybe 10% of current supply or maybe 1,000% of current supply. Do you have intuition about it? I mean, the amount that is issued and printed is based on security of the network. Um, and again, I'm not an expert in the uh, kind of proof of stake, the, the details of this proof of stake security. But uh, as I understand the amount issued is, is, has been decided this is an amount that is uh, sufficient to keep Ethereum network safe. Uh, so the amount burned is just based on demand. And so I think the interesting thing is that there's like a, a lower bound for the change in Ether supply, because if nobody's sending transaction, if the fees are zero, then we just have this very linear increase in Ethereum supply. But when demand increases, there's no, there's no like, ceiling to how high fees can go. Um, so fees can go very high and the amount of ETH that exists can, can decrease very quickly. Um, so this is, I think, something that we'll see is like, you know, fees will be low for a bit and the amount of ETH is increasing. And then there's like an NFT drop and then the fees will skyrocket. And all of a sudden we'll start burning like, you know, I think sometimes the amount burned is like 10 times higher than the amount issued. So we'll have these very steep 
decreases in supply. Um, so yeah, again, the, the overall equilibrium, I think the equilibrium, um, that we'll reach will be like, this will be over a, a long time span, but, um, it, I, I think we will reach kind of some equilibrium at some point where the amount burned is, is equal to the value of uh, the network. Cause again, demand is, is valued in dollars. So I think we'll reach some equilibrium where, uh, the supply is somewhat constant. And then if Ethereum becomes more valuable, it'll kind of readjust and then reach equilibrium again. Uh, but those are on like very macro timescales. I think the, the exciting thing is to see like in a, in a shorter term, how will like the markets react to these? We've got the, a few different markets. There's like the market price of ether and there's the, um, on chain market for block space. Uh, those two markets are kind of like in equilibrium to, to figure out like, uh, and I guess the other market is how much demand is there for validators. So three different variables that are all changing and all adjusting each other. And, uh, we'll see how they affect each other. But, you know, I think the hope as anyone who's holding ETH is hoping that, uh, um, to the moon, the, <laughs> that it goes to the moon that, uh, you know, we're burning so much ETH, uh, you know, whereas just a few months ago, like there was millions of dollars, I think millions of dollars today of, of ETH being like, issued uh on the market that miners were having to sell now we're like burning all this ETH, uh and that's maybe the market kind of has to reprice ETH based on that but uh you know if there's one thing that's for certain crypto it's that we never really know these things are, are <laughs> uh, above uh, any of our, our understanding yeah that's that's so very true as a holder of ETH, i can relate uh, all right, so today I think we mentioned about a dozen websites, which is like CryptoStats, CryptoFees, Layer 2 Fees, Layer 2 Beat, um, yeah, ETH Burned, Money Printer, CryptoFees. Uh, I guess one we didn't mention, Ethereum Nodes. I would suppose there may be more of those. Like, And I wanted to ask, how many side projects do you have, David? Are those all your websites? Uh, it's too, too, too many. And um, there's other sites that are... We've got one site that's really cool um, that uh, maybe by the time this comes out, people can check out, but it's a, I won't reveal the site yet, but it's something that shows how these different blockchains are like interacting and bridging value between each other. So we're still trying to build new sites. Um, a number of the ones you mentioned, aren't, uh, most of them are, are sites that uh, our team has built. There are other sites as well that I'm just big fans of, things like L2Beat and DeFi Llama and um, Ultrasound Money. Um, those are just kind of cool websites in the ecosystem. But uh, yeah, our goal with CryptoStats is to keep building new websites um, whenever we think there's some opportunity to... Um, usually when there's some metric that we think is being like under uh, underappreciated uh, that would help people understand the space better. We're, we're not trying to be like um, some of these data products that are really for like the data nerds to give them like tons of data to grind through. We want to like really simplify things down to a basic level uh, and just give people like one, one metric that they can look at and hopefully help them understand this, this crazy space a little better. Yeah, this is cool. I, I can only wonder how do you actually do DevOps for all of these things? Probably way more complex than just putting everything into <laughs> one database, having domains and all this stuff. Um, all right. Uh, I guess we need to wrap up around here. So this podcast was brought to you by two Ukrainians and David, who is very sympathetic to Ukraine. And uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, this is when we say um, 
please, please, please help Ukraine fight Russia and donate some funds to the fund name savelife.in.ua slash n slash donate dash n. So please help Ukraine fight uh, the terrorist state and do not fund the podcast, fund the Ukraine. Uh, thanks for listening and tuning in. Uh, please subscribe to us in YouTube if you want to see our faces or maybe Apple Podcasts if you want to listen to us or Google Podcasts or Spotify. And thank you. Decorator. <laughs> Sweet. Thanks, David.